Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thank you so much for listening in this week. We hope you enjoy the show. If you get the chance to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen, we'd appreciate that. Thanks so much to the team who helps produce this show, including Mim Ward, and I'll let the rest introduce themselves here. I'm James Steinbach, Web Development. Rebecca Churhill, Media and Marketing. I'm Ed Hackey, and I produce the show. We hope you enjoy the show today. Thanks for listening. Thanks, OnScript listeners, for joining us. This is Matthew Bates, your co-host for this episode. First century author Plutarch, in his Life of Numa, speaks of the ideal dynamic between a king and his people as follows. For not only was the Roman people softened and charmed by the righteousness and mildness of their king, but also the cities around about as if some cooling breeze or salubrious wind were wafted upon them from Rome, so that the people began to experience a change of temper, and all of them were filled with longing desire to have good government, to be at peace, to till the earth, to rear their children in quiet, and to worship the gods. Honor and justice flowed into all the hearts from the wisdom of Numa, as from a fountain, and the calm serenity of his spirit diffused itself abroad. For there is no record either of war or faction, nor political revolution, while Numa was king. Well, this quote uh, I've taken uh, is from Julian Smith's book, Paul and the Good Life, Transformation and Citizenship in the Commonwealth of God, uh, published by Baylor University Press in 2020. I have Julian here with me. Welcome to OnScript, Julian. Thanks, Matt. So good to be with you. Now, Julian, uh, why is it imperative um, that the people see the ruler as an exemplar of virtue? Uh, And we've sort of seen some of that already in our quote from Plutarch's uh, Life of Numa. Well, let's start with the obvious, Matt, from our own context. I mean, we can see, uh, even though our political and cultural situation is very different, why it's good to have people in government at the very highest levels who exemplify the character that we think is at the, you know, at the heart of uh, what our society should be. So, so we get that. There's another reason, though, in the ancient context, that the king, and we can talk more about this later, perhaps, if, uh, if that's helpful, but the king was thought to occupy the space between the divine and the human. Um, And there are reasons for that, but let me just say what the effect of that is. That the king is the person who is able to transmit in his role as a benefactor divine virtue to the people. So there really is a strong sense of um, the commonwealth going as the king goes. So as the king is, so the people. Um, This isn't, I mean, the the quote is from Plutarch. It's not just a Greco-Roman idea. I think you find this in uh, Jewish tradition 
as well, and more broadly throughout antiquity. Um, we might initially be inclined to sort of dismiss that because we think, well, we don't generally believe that leaders of republics um, or, you know, monarchs, there aren't very many of them today, but we generally don't believe that these people occupy this space between the divine and the human. Um, what I would additionally say, though, is that this construal of the king in this particular place and thinking about our relationship to the king is also closely related to a particular way in which um, people in antiquity thought you develop a virtuous character. Um, and you see this especially in philosophical discourse um, and the concept of a philosophical school in which people come not to study f philosophy as we might today in the academy, philosophy rather as a way of life. And there's aspects of philosophy that are certainly taught, and philosophical dialogues are, of course, communicating propositional truth, but there's also a larger sense in which you uh, sit at the feet of a master sage um, in the way you can imagine disciples sitting at the feet of Jesus. In fact, the Gospels use that phraseology as a way of describing association, that what you're doing is you're learning the pattern of life that a particular person uh, exemplifies, and you're catching it. Um, and I think, so if you, if you look closely at the language of the quote you read, there's a sense in which the goodness of the emperor um, is diffused like a, a, a pleasant breeze um, and sort of um, has an ineluctable transformative effect on the people. And I think that's in part a way of talking about how the associative power uh, of being in the presence of a particular sort of person has a transformative effect on the character. Yeah, I don't think you're probably going to need to work too hard to convince any of us um, that character <laughs> matters right? okay. uh, in terms of, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe if we weren't convinced of that before, um, regardless of your political persuasion one way or the other, um, certainly the last four years uh, in, in, uh, has, has certainly like highlighted the fact that, uh, that character matters. Um, and I, um, yeah, I think that that's, um, that's a helpful way of kind of framing, um, yeah, some, some bridge or at least bridging the gap between the ancient context and today's context. Um, you've obviously worked a lot on the topic of ideal kingship and we've already touched on it. You, you've done some earlier work on this and, and I'll introduce the reader to that, uh, the listener to that more fully in a few minutes. But, um, uh, could you explain a little bit more, like, what do we mean by ideal kingship and why might that matter for studying the New Testament? What is ideal kingship? Uh, yeah, helpful question, Matt. We should distinguish, uh, ideal kingship from actual kingship. Um, and what I make um, clear at a couple different points in the book is, for example, Paul is not making in his letters, I don't think, an argument for monarchy as a good form of human government. Um, he was familiar with that. Essentially, that's what 
uh, Rome was. It was a kind of constitutional monarchy. Uh, they didn't like to use the word rex uh, because that had bad connotations in their own history. Tyrant. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and this is precisely the problem, Matt, that um, monarchy um, essentially breeds tyranny. So if you go back to Aristotle's politics, um, which is very closely related with um, another book, The Nicomachean Ethics. But in the politics, he's, he, he allows that, you know, monarchy probably is the best form of government, but it has a shadow side, and that shadow side is tyranny. And so actually it's better to have, in terms of government, something like an aristocracy, Aristotle thinks. Um, but to go back to your question, what are we talking about with ideal uh, kingship? In, in the Jewish tradition that we find in, in the scriptures, Paul's scriptures, um, it's clear that God is king. Um, and uh, humankind, in fact, all creation relates to God um, as, uh, as the creator who rules over the creation. And um, human kingship with which scripture has a quite ambivalent relationship. Um, but indeed, um, just human activity, I think, is supposed, um, in the perception of scripture, human activity is supposed to extend the reign of God on earth. And human king kings within Israel are supposed to facilitate that by leading people to be faithful to the covenant relationship. Um, so, um, in, uh, in Israel's tradition, what the king does, uh, and in fact, the, the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, I believe it is, um, stipulates that, you know, the, the king is supposed to read Torah and lead his fellow Israelites. And it's clear that they're fellow Israelites, that he's not to dominate them and domineer over them. Uh, supposed to lead them in faithful um, allegiance to to Yahweh um, and and uh, allegiance and following of Torah as God's kind of instruction for a life of flourishing. So that's what's particular in Israel. Yeah, and I think that you and um, both you and Joshua Jip in, in your books, um, Joshua Jip's books, uh, Christ is King, um, your earlier work on ideal kingship in this present book, um, you really bring out the fact that an ideal king as such, right, um, is not above the law, but embodies it or ensouls the law, right? And, uh, and so that, um, yeah, that we would want, not want to see the king above the law, but as a living exemplar that through um, gazing on this king and the way that he embodies the law, um, that transformation in, in, ensues for the citizen body. Um, at least that's how I would read um, uh, your, your trajectory through this material um, and, and why I'm kind of like bringing together the Hebraic side and also the Greco-Roman side, why ideal kingship seems to matter a lot. Um, that's that, right. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, if you want to clarify or expand, sure. No, you, you got it quite right, Matt. Um, uh, to, but to back up, why why it was sort of thought that the king is a living law goes, I think, back to the theoretical philosophizing of Aristotle and Plato in the classical Greek tradition, and they were thinking. Uh, about the ideal way in which one could foster virtue in the polis. And certainly you needed good laws 
to um, morally educate people. Um, but laws, of course, are problematic. They don't always fit every situation well. And so if you had somebody leading the, the, the Commonwealth of the Polis who could embody the law, um, the, the, the implanted law, the nomos emsuchos, that person would be the ideal person to inculcate virtue or living by the morally educative laws of the polis. The other thing, too, to note um, is that Plato thinks the ideal ruler should be a philosopher. And this is carried forward in the tradition by the likes of Musonius Rufus, who has a tract, uh, tractate called uh, Why Kings Should Study Philosophy. And again, we have to get away from the notion in, in our current context that philosophy is this particular academic discipline. In the ancient world, philosophy, the love of wisdom, was a way of living, and the job of the king was to inculcate that pattern of life among the people. In other words, the, the techne or the craft of the king was to produce excellent people, produce virtuous people. Um, and he was able to do that because the spirit of the law was embodied in his very person. Yeah, um, I, I think that's that's super helpful. It makes me think of um, some of the work Jonathan Pennington's been doing too on human flourishing, and you kind of make connections with eudaimonia there. Um, uh, yeah, Jonathan Pennington has a new book out, um, uh, Jesus the Philosopher, uh, or Jesus the Great Philosopher, is that the name of it? Um, that I think is probably working. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let me introduce you a little bit more fully um, for guests who, uh, uh, for listeners who don't know you. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm st talking here with Julian C. H. Smith. Uh, and Julian is Associate Professor of the Humanities and Theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. Um, and uh, you've been at uh, Valpo for how many years now? Um, just over 10. Came here in 2010. Just yeah. over 10. Yeah, that's marvelous. Um, so uh, Julian's uh, scholarly interests are on Bible textual traditions more generally. Um, he did an MA in theology at Fuller and a PhD in religion at Baylor. Uh, and he's written on a whole variety of topics. Um, but probably the most important to point out for you would be his first book, uh, Christ the Ideal King, Cultural Context, Rhetorical Strategy, and the Power of Divine Mar Monarchy in Ephesians. And that was published in 2011. Um, he's recently been writing um, some on, uh, uh, and this shows some of his breadths, uh, Walker Percy, Jacques Maritain, and the Jews, uh, and um, some stuff on the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, and he teaches um, th uh, uh, seminars uh, at Valpo uh, that have to do with Jesus, Paul, theology, ecology, and so forth. Um, the book that's under discussion today um, is really a marvelous book, Paul and the Good Life, Transformation and Citizenship in the Commonwealth of God, as I mentioned, published by Baylor University Press. Now, Julian, I don't usually flatter my guests quite this much, um, but I'll be frank. Um, I'll, I'll say this is one of the most helpful books for my own scholarship that I've read in, in quite a long while, as you're offering answers to many of the questions that I've been asking myself about the gospel, about allegiance, about politics and the good life. How do these all mesh? How do they interface? Uh, others have been asking me this too, um, both in, in, in pri private conversation, like 
interviews that I, I've been asked to do. And I, I sometimes um, am kind of hinting at, at these sort of directions that you're going and trying to connect the dots in the way that you do. Uh, but I think that you go much further than anything that I've done or that I've read others do in this direction, especially connecting um, things like the political life uh, to virtue, to uh, allegiance, to the king, to, to, to kind of drawing all these threads together in a really holistic way. So I want to I want to commend you and thank you and also um, really strongly recommend this book to OnScript listeners. Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so in my first question, I kind of jumped into the middle of your book, uh, and uh, I want to back up a little bit, um, and um, l- let's let's go back into the intro. Um, as you speak of, of several epiphanies that led you uh, into this book, um, as you said, actually, in your intro, this was interesting that you weren't really very interested in Paul, at least originally, or you had to kind of, um, through a life journey, be drawn into a, a higher interest uh, in Paul. Uh, yeah, tell us about these epiphanies and, and kind of the backstory that led to this book. Sure. So, um, like a lot of my students um, and just regular people that I meet in church or anywhere, I was not interested in Paul as a, a young person, primarily because I perceived him to be sort of a busybody um, and the sort of person who was into making fine theological distinctions that I wasn't really sure mattered, but also because the people who really were interested in Paul seemed to be the sort of people who just loved theological controversy, which I thought was rather divisive and just didn't interest me. The other thing I would say is um, in college, I sort of had this spiritual awakening in my own faith, um, largely through the ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And for me, what that meant was sort of a passion to be a follower of Jesus and that was really informed by the Gospels, in particular Mark's Gospel. So I also felt like, well, wh- why do you really need Paul? What does he give you? Yeah, we got Jesus. That's surely exactly. quite, quite a bit better, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly right. Um, I eventually learned some things. Um, I ended up going to seminary, um, not with a great intention. I, I just I was looking for tools to sharpen the saw, so to speak, um, in ministry. This was when I was on staff with InterVarsity. And, I, and of course, I had to learn some things about Paul. One of the curious things I learned uh, is that Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. So if you read Mark, which I had been doing for years, and you, then you go read Galatians, it will feel like you're stepping forward in the canon, right? But you're, you're and stepping forward in the narrative, but you're going backwards in time. And what I came to realize is that many of the ways that I was reading the Gospels um, were through lenses that Paul had ground. And I also find helpful, so if you, if you think about what the tasks that Jesus is doing of proclaiming the kingdom, inaugurating it, um, ushering it in through his death and resurrection, what Paul's doing in some ways seems more analogous to the task before us. Like we're, we're learning to live in the new creation and sort out all the uh, implications. So Paul has been a very um, helpful um traveling companion with you. Do you like Paul better than Jesus now? Oh, man. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I think you should, that should be for the lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I have, I have come to think of Paul in a a less, I've been certainly more charitable to Paul the more I've um, learned about him and, and thought with him. 
The other thing I'll describe um, that led to the writing of this book is kind of a happy accident. It's landing this job. So I teach in an interdisciplinary honors college. Um, so not in a religion or theology department. Um, you know, person next door to me studies art history and architecture, and one down that, from that is uh, an East Asian anthropologist. So I don't, I, I'm not sort of in daily conversation with other biblical scholars and other people in theology, although they are at my university. Um, and a large part of what we're doing in our teaching here is grappling with big questions like what does it mean to flourish as a human being? Uh, how do we think of freedom and what are its limits and so forth. And in our first year curriculum, we do read um, the Gospel of Mark, we read Genesis, Augustine's Confession, some other theological texts. Um, what I notice among my students when we turn from, let's say, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics to Genesis, students will intuitively feel that we're now asking a different question. So we were asking a question about human flourishing, and now clearly, since we're reading the Bible, we must be asking, how do we get saved? And so, in other words, it's perceived that whatever Christian text, and in particular Paul is doing, he's not helping us think about the life of human flourishing. So what I've tried to do in this book partly to work it out for myself and to introduce my students to Paul in this way, is to create a place at the table for Paul as a discussion partner in this question of how do we um, pursue a life that is rich and flourishing. Uh, and of course, Paul has different answers to that question than, let's say, Aristotle. Um, but I do think he's asking a similar sort of question. Yeah, that's. Um, I think that's very helpful. And it, it's um, maybe if you could crystallize all that for us, what's your central argument that you're making in the book? How do you connect the dots as concisely as you can? Then, um, where where are you trying? To, what are you trying to say? Yes, uh, I'm trying to say that Paul is making an argument for a Christologically reoriented version of human flourishing, and that he uses the categories um, that were available to him in, the Gre in his Greco-Roman milieu um, for understanding um, how humans, um, so the sort of a psychologically realistic understanding of uh, what character is and how it can be formed. And he thinks that that's um, a central part of what it means to live in the world and to inhabit the life that is now available as a consequence of the resurrection. So there's certainly something new, radically new, about Paul's worldview as a consequence of the Messiah coming, uh, of his death and resurrection, that makes it possible to live in the way that God created humans to live, if you go back to Genesis 1, to fully inhabit our human calling to be, as M.T. Wright coins it, looking after creatures. So fulfilling our human vocation for Paul is now a real possibility as a consequence of, of 
the resurrection and the new creation. But the way he sees us becoming people uh, that are transformed into the image of Christ um, depends, I think, upon traditional uh, received wisdom about you know, what a character is and how it operates and how it can be affected. Yeah, so I, I think one of the strengths of your book is you really show that salvation is not just rescue from something, but rescue into something, and that and that into something involves character transformation that can't be understood or undertaken apart from like a community formation and a creational context, as you're sort of bringing all those things together in a really powerful way. As a sort of heuristic device, um, and you uh, acknowledge that it's a heuristic device that needs to be defended in your book, um, you, you split... Um, uh, you split uh, the topically, I guess, uh, into four C's um, that are, um, you know, maybe convenient for preaching and for uh, their alliterative value. Um, and you use those as a, as a way of advancing the conversation and showing that around these four C's, it seems that Paul um, uh, Paul's vision of the good life unfolds. So these four C's, citizenship, character, community and creation, citizenship, character, community, and creation. Uh, let's talk about each briefly, um, and then maybe we can think through, um, yeah, um, other d dimensions of that. But w how do those fit into, um, I guess, um, your, your vision for what Paul has for us uh, in terms of salvation and a life of human flourishing is those are bound together. So yeah, why don't we be on a citizenship? Right. So um, in the ancient world, Greco-Roman um, philosophical discourse, uh, the good life had a particular social context, and that context was the polis. So this notion of a, a city-state that um, really forms our identity. So Aristotle thought, if you happen to grow up in Sparta, he thinks, your whole notion of what excellence is, of, 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 of a good character, is going to be warped because of your social location. It will be overly martial. He thinks that Athens is sort of the proper location uh, to be in. Um, so I guess what I'm saying by highlighting citizenship is that the good life requires a social context and a sense of belonging in that context, of being part of, uh, I would say, a political project. What I mean by political is just pertaining to the flourishing of the polis, in the sense that Aristotle says a human is a political animal. So we, we are social, but our social context is not like a pack of dogs. It is the polis. It's this common project of human flourishing that we all participate in. Can I, yeah, how about I, how about I uh, press you to illustrate that, because this is how you illustrate it in your book, by, um, you, you kind of lead us through Philippians, um, and some material on Philippians there, Philippians chapter 1, 25 through whatever, 30, or whatever it is, and, um, and then tie that to some of Paul's specific language. Um, if that wouldn't press you too much, it looks like um, page 37 was is where I'm kind of talking about in your book um, that I at least had flagged uh, as, as having to do with, um, with that topic. Right. So um, on page 37, I'm looking at a passage in Philippians chapter 1, um, verses 27 to 29. And the context here is Paul is in prison. Uh, where he's in prison is a matter of debate. I think it's likely to be Ephesus. And he, uh, the church in Philippi knows that he's in prison. In fact, they've sent Epaphroditus to take care of him, who uh, nearly dies. He's writing them a letter of thanks, 
for their gift. But I think he's also trying to give an account of the status of their partnership in the gospel. Um, and he lets them know that it's still flourishing, it's still advancing, paradoxically, despite his imprisonment. And I think he's also got to help them understand um, what it means to be uh, a faithful, loyal follower of Jesus vis-a-vis -vis, um, one's social location in the midst of the Roman Empire. So Paul, as Acts tells us, is a citizen of Rome, um, but he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I think should be taken as a political announcement. It should be taken to mean that uh, the kingdom of God is now here. It has been inaugurated through uh, this rival king, Jesus. In fact, in Thessalonica, when uh, the crowds object to Paul, they, they say he is proclaiming another king, Jesus, that's not lawful for us as Romans. Uh, I think they got that right. Um, so it's in that context that Paul says, um, and this is, I think, um, Philippians 1, 29, uh, sorry, 27. He says, only, and the NRSV translates it, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can read that as sort of a, a generic, you know, uh, exhortation to clean living, right? Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do be in church on Sunday and Wednesday. You can reduce that to just moral behavior very easily, <laughs> That's right. right? But you point out that, it, that the language is more precise there. That's right. So this verb to live your life, uh, polituomai, has the normal sense of conduct yourself as a citizen. So Paul is saying, I think, and he makes this clear later on in the, in the letter when he says explicitly in chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. Our polituma exists in the heavens. Uh, I think what he's getting at is uh, what it means to uh, give faithful allegiance to Jesus um, in the midst of an empire that is radically oriented away from and challenges at every turn this kind of allegiance, um, you must see yourself as, as conducting yourself as a citizen within this reality that is, quite frankly, hard to see, right? Um, it's, I mean, I think the community at Philippi was very small and probably marginal in terms of their socioeconomic status. Um, okay, so then we could ask, right, what does that look like? And um, Paul, I think, is spelling that out in the very next chapter when he says, have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this verb, to have the mind in Greek, uh, phroneo, it's the verb from which we get the noun phronesis. And this is, according to Aristotle, a virtue. It's the virtue of practical wisdom, um, or we could think of it as moral insight. So to, to conduct ourselves properly as citizens under the reign of Jesus, we need to have our moral insight formed by Jesus himself. And what does that look like? Uh, I think principally, Paul says, 
And, and he quotes this famous hymn. It was a hymn that probably the Philippians and Paul knew together, that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. So it's not standing on status and privilege as a way to insulate oneself from suffering, but faithfully following Jesus um, into the path of suffering in the confidence that now we live in a reality, the reality in which God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him far above every name, that we don't any longer sort of have to uh, live as though the reality was one of endless competition and, um, you know, Paul is writing in an agonistic society in which everyone is searching for a limited good, namely honor. And if I have more honor, Matt, it means you have less. Um, and, and Paul is advocating an entirely different set of virtues um, that is downwardly mobile, to use a, a contemporary phrase. Yeah, I think that um, you've you've done a great job of showing us, um, you know, what citizenship meant and kind of making that practical in terms of a reading. And I think that's one of the things that's the strength of your book. It's a close reading of, of Paul's letters um, and also kind of moving that into character, right, as we see what the character of the king looks like, right? He's 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 not a megalomaniac. Um, he in, instead is emptying himself of his status, right, for the sake of others. Um, and um, so your other uh, C's are community and creation. Let's pause on those and, and hold them back for a minute. It, um, as I want to just uh, to to, uh, to uh, do a little speed around here, just to change just to change the pace, uh, and uh, and for us to um, to uh, pick your brain in maybe a sillier way. Okay, remind right, me so, how the points work here, Matt. Uh, there are no points. I just well, ask how, you questions. How do I know if I win the prize? Oh, um, yeah, uh, uh, the prize will be um, honor um, in okay. our agonistic competition. <laughs> um, you'll have more. I'll have less. Um, okay. All right. So uh, you're walking with friends on the edge of a bizarre bronze lake. A gust of wind blows you over a precipice. You fall 15 feet into the water, only to discover it isn't water but beer. Are you panicked Ooh. or overjoyed? And what kind of beer do you hope it is? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I'm not panicked. I am overjoyed. I, I hope it's an IPA, and I, I hope it's uh, kind of a one with a floral, very... Very hoppy, baby, fruity oh, aroma. Gosh, I hope I, I get blown into my, yeah, this lake, should, too. You I, should I, hope I'm, you're I'm walking with, you. with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. All right, uh, if your mother walked into your office right now, what would she, st what would she say about it? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, so on my wall, uh, I have a, a portrait of my mother's grandfather. Um, and I don't think she knows that it's here. I think that she would... He's, playing a violin. It's a really lovely portrait. I, I think she would just kind of be overjoyed to see that. She might start weeping. She's a, she, like me, is kind of an emotional person. Um, yeah, she, she, that's how she might react. Well, um, she might just be glad to see me, frankly. I, yeah, I don't know. probably. Yeah, well, since I have the video on, I'm going to say there's too much wood paneling. Uh, it looks like you might be still <laughs> stuck in the, you know, the 1970s uh, there, Julia, the in your 60s, office. Or actually, 60s, actually. 60s, 60s vintage. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. So uh, react to this word, Julian. How does this word make you feel? fetish man you know i know what that word means but i'm going to be a little bit silly if that word meant like describing an abundance of feta cheese it would make me so happy uh -huh. if like if we were all fetish and we we, we got to eat we more feta <laughs> ample supply to feta that would be 
I would love that. <laughs> Feta and beer. All you right. just need bread now. Well, I know you're going to have some recommendations for me on this front because you're so well-read, and that shows in your book, and we'll get to that in a bit. But give me a book or an author outside of Bible or theology that you think is worth reading. Okay. Um, I think um, if, if you're not already a fan, you should read Wendell Berry. And I'm going to share you a book, uh, a story, and a poem. So one of my favorite Wendell Berry books is a novel called Hannah Coulter. It's about a woman who grows up in a, a rural agrarian community, and as she grows older, the, the, the lament of the book is to see children leaving it, which is generally what's happened in, uh, to local farming communities. So it's a vision of the good life and a lament to see it slipping away. The story, one of my favorite f stories of all, period, is called Fidelity. And it's the story of a, an old man who's dying and kind of the medical establishment gets a hold of him and they, and they won't let him die. And it's the story of how his family um, negotiates that difficult situation and tries to restore him to the community where he really belongs. And the poem, uh, go out and read it today. It's called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And like all good manifestos, it sort of thinks critically about the world we live in and offers a really inviting picture of a new way to live in the world. And the last line of the poem is this, practice resurrection. Wow. Yeah, well, um, probably a, a lot of Wendell Berry fans, I would guess, uh, might be on script listeners. I actually have a Wendell Berry question for you later, so I'm, yeah, I'm sure okay. I'll watch your appetite with that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, if I toss you three apples right now, can you juggle them? Uh, poorly. You can juggle a little, though. All right. Well, I really lied. No, I can't. Not I, at all. Okay. Yeah. What's the best thing about spring break? Oh, man. Well, it's such a sad thing if you live in northwest Indiana and you're a teacher because spring break is not, not spring. a break and it's not spring. <laughs> and uh, we used to, at, at Valpo, we used to have a two-week spring break, which was awesome because, like, you sort of have this little respite where you can start up a little project but we actually changed our schedule and now it's just four days around easter so i'm yeah. lamenting that i hear you yeah we we have a spring break trimming this year as well that's that's a bit tragic um all right so let's go back in uh, we'll maybe do a little more speed round later but let's let's jump in um so we did, did citizenship win, uh yeah you've, you've gained oh. honor uh especially your, your window berry uh answer that 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 was that was amazing um all right, so let's uh, let's do. We've done citizenship and character. Um, how about you speak uh, to community and creation as your other four C's, um, and and how they fit into um, the holistic framework that you're trying to develop? Yeah. Okay. Let's begin with community. And in the book, um, what I'm looking at is the letters um, to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae. Uh, which are, um, your readers will know, very closely related. Um, lots of overlap at the arguments of those letters. My focus on these letters is on Paul's language of worship. And where I start, um, if I get back up to my own location, um, we read a Chinese philosopher in our first year whose name is Shunzi. He lived in the Warring States period, which was really chaotic in China. And he's making an argument, I think, for a proper following of tradition as a way to inhabit life better that leads to harmony. He's got this great uh, description of a drinking ceremony. 
<laughs> Your college students love this, right? I know they do. Yeah. So we're reading this, and it's all about how to conduct yourself properly in a way that to enjoy it, but to enjoy it moderately and in a way that preserves social distinctions so that everybody can know their place in it. And I ask my students, do you know of any drinking ceremonies, like in the Bible? And I'm like, no, this is just a silly question. And I eventually point them to the discussion of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, where you have a drinking ceremony gone wrong. So it's supposed to be a meal that transcends the divisions that exist in, uh, in Roman society and unites the community under uh, you know, the, the love and allegiance to Jesus. But instead in Corinth, it has devolved into something that just reifies those social divisions. And Paul is appalled and his response is, I think, to lead them through the meal. And I'm, I'm, my understanding of this passage has really been helped by a, a dissertation of Michael Rhodes. Um, did his dissertation with Craig Bartholomew, which I hope gets published soon. But what I learned um, from that study is that Paul's response to this predicament uh, this disorder in the meal is actually to teach them how properly to celebrate this meal. In other words, um, it's the ritual of the meal properly practiced and understood, which is essential in forming the, what um, the sociologist and anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu would call the habitus of the community. That's sort of a, almost a precognitive disposition to the way life really works and what we should expect in the world. And um, my, so my argument in this chapter on Colossians and Ephesians is that Paul is adopting this really rich uh, liturgical language in part because he wants to read his leaders into the experience of worship and he thinks that in that experience um, they will properly see themselves as inhabiting this new world that exists, but which is right difficult to see um, amidst the overwhelming um, ideology of empire that they face every day. Um, and importantly, what I think that worship does, or ought to do perhaps, right? There, so there's an ought in all of Paul's letters because he knows that they're worshiping, but he still has to write to them about the proper way to do it. What I think worship does is it's a, a crucial component in knitting the community together across um, the things that divide us. Um, and part of this idea comes out of the, the, the very structure, for example, of the letter of Ephesians. So you have this lengthy, what looks like to be um, a digression about moral behavior it's a sort of a two ways form. Avoid the way that leads to darkness and pursue the way that leads to light. And it's sort of plopped down right in the middle of um, a, a discourse that is about the gifts that Christ has given that lead to unity and then kind of resuming that in the, the, the unity that results, let's say, in the, in the proper ordering of the household. Um, let me pause there. Yeah, that's no. Those are some very helpful thoughts on um, I think how you know worship is formative and um, shapes community. And uh, yeah, I'd certainly like um, yeah, how you bridge between a drinking ceremony gone wrong to worship uh, so easily. 
Um, how about, um, I'd like to hear you speak to creation, and just for the sake of time, I kind of want to keep us moving. How about we do it in, a, in, a, in, a, in another way? Um, as I, I promised, I wanted to let you talk about Wendell Berry some more, too. So, um, and I think this is one of the most impressive and, frankly, entertaining things about your book is just you bring in tons of voices, both from the Western religious tradition, outside the Western religious tradition, um, the philosophical tradition. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Musonius, Rufus, it goes on and on. Um, uh, but we also have some stalwarts like Wendell Berry, uh, Dallas Willard, James K.A. Smith. And I would say those are three of your main interlocutors as you're, as you're, um, you're crafting things. So let's just say um, we have Wendell Berry, Dallas Willard, and James K.A. Smith, uh, and they go into a bar, okay? Um, and uh, they're actually discussing your book uh, at the bar. Um, each orders a drink, and uh, they want to talk about topics in your book with the other people, okay? So, uh, you know, Barry Wilder and Smith, they all want to use your book as an opportunity to riff on the things that they're interested in, okay? Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, what does each one order, um, you know, as, as you begin to talk about them, and what do they want to emphasize in their discussion to the others? And so, uh, I suspect with Wendell Berry, uh, he's going to want to talk about creation a bit. Uh, so, why don't we use uh, that as an opportunity for you to, um, say, what does Wendell Berry want to say? How did, how's, how's, how's this conversation, um, a Wendell Berry conversation for you? Um, and you got to tell us what drink he orders first. Okay, Wendell, Wendell Berry walks up to the bar and orders a bourbon. A bourbon, okay. He's from Kentucky. Okay. And what would he want to say about creation? So uh, the first thing I should say about Wendell Berry is I don't think he thinks very highly of the Apostle Paul. Um, maybe this book might change his mind. But he, I think he thinks of Paul in the same way that I did years ago, as this sort of theological busybody and divisive of community and a bit of a chauvinist. I think, though, that Wendell Berry... He needs to read Romans and, 8. You know, Wendell Berry does, right? Yes, <laughs> Yes, he right. does, right? So, yeah, okay, um, yeah, okay, go ahead. I think that Paul would embody the same lament over... Um, the horribly bad stewardship of creation that humans um, have lived out, and, and, and which the church has quite frankly endorsed in many ways. Um, by the way, I'm, uh, a, a really helpful book on understanding Paul's lament with respect to creation is by Sylvia Kiesmatt and Brian Walsh called Romans Disarmed. Um, but. Um, one of the things that I focus on um, in the chapter on Romans uh, that I think Wendell Berry was really helpful for understanding is the way in which Roman agricultural practices and contemporary agricultural practices both contribute to um, uh, sort of the abdication of the proper human place as stewards of creation. Um, in ancient Rome, a lot of agricultural work became increasingly done by tenant farmers and slaves. And so we have uh, agricultural theorists like uh, Columella. Uh, his book is De Re Rustica. And he laments the fact that agriculture is in such a poor state. And he thinks one of the reasons is that we've handed it over to slaves. Um, we haven't, uh, who are, of course, badly treated and badly, um, uh, poorly paid and not given a place in which they uh, are encouraged to profit from and enjoy the fruits of their labor. They're sort of made to do it. And 
um, in a way, we've done the same thing um, since roughly World War II in the United States. The USDA official policy has sort of been get big or get out. We want farming to be done as efficiently as possible with as few people doing it as possible. Um, and unfortunately, this has resulted in a really growing ecological crisis. I mean, we are destroying topsoil, to just give one uh, startling fact. We're destroying the topsoil at a rate that's about nine times faster than it can be reproduced naturally. And topsoil is the stuff of life. If we, if we completely exhaust it, I don't know how we will actually be feeding ourselves. So there's um, also, I think, a, a loss know. of agrarian values, right? Uh, and that's something that you discuss in the book, um, and that might lead us into our next. Um, well, maybe, maybe not. We'll see how you take the conversation. Uh, the next uh, person up, walks up to the bar uh, uh, is Dallas Willard, um, who's an important conversation partner to for you too. Um, yeah, how, what is what does Willard order um, at the bar? Does he order anything? I'm curious about Willard. Uh, and He's then, gonna. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, what is uh, and what does he have to say uh, about like he's using your book as an opportunity to to to, to talk to Barry and to Smith. So, um, what, what's he say? Yeah, I think uh, I think he's going to order an iced tea. And yeah, okay. Uh, I think yeah. he might be a tea a root beer, or maybe. Not, yeah, maybe. Not, uh, no, 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 no Coke or no rum in the in the in yeah, the root beer. The, the only so. thing I know personally about his eating habits is that when he's lonely, or he was, he's passed away now. Sadly, he used to he used to eat candy bars. Was okay. kind of his that, vice. Was his, that was his one vice. Okay. All right. <laughs> Can you get a candy bar? Bar? I don't know. So. Um, if I could recommend to your listeners just a fantastic book by Dallas Willard, it would be The Spirit of the Discipline. That's my favorite of his, he, my very favorite yeah, of his too, yeah. In which he's helping recover the way in which God through the Spirit changes our character. And it's not sort of magic is the important thing to understand, but it's through the um, intelligent and diligent but also grace-infused and grace-made possible practice of spiritual disciplines. And he, and he thinks that Paul would understand and endorse these, that, that these were central to the life of Jesus and have largely been important in the life of the church, but for various historical reasons fell out um, in the Middle Ages and then in the Reformation. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, so he would use the disciplines in order to, like, shape character, uh, maybe, and to help recover, um, yeah, uh, dimensions of our character. I, I actually misspoke. His Spirit of His Disciplines is maybe my second favorite of his. I oh, like okay. Renovation of the Heart was the one I was thinking of. That's my very favorite of his. I like Spirit of the Disciplines, too. Um, but, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted what you were about to say. Uh, I apologize. I, I got excited to think about uh, how I would think Willard would answer rather than you. Uh, yeah. yeah, keep going. So one way that Willard and Barry might really agree here is that solutions to the problems that beset us are, are generally smaller than we think. So we tend to be, in the United States, I think, fans of big solutions. We want to elect politicians to office who are going to come up with a comprehensive plan and fix everything. And what Barry thinks is actually you need to think small, you need to think locally, you need to be asking what contributes to the health of this community, of this piece of land, 
Um, and, and it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. And what Willard would say that really underlines that is he thinks that societal change needs to begin with individuals, right? So one of the reasons that society suffers from evil and injustice is because the readiness of the human heart to embrace evil. So you take a democracy like the United States, which is, you know, arguably sort of the shining light of human governance in the world today, and you think about what's happening in our own commonwealth, and you realize it's not simply coming up with an institution or policies, it's finding a way to form people to inhabit those structures. And if we can't do that, we're never going to solve what we think of these big, insurmountable, intractable problems. So I think they would both say we need to be thinking small at the human, at the community level, at the local level. All right. So uh, James K.A. Smith uh, is also uh, speaking with uh, Wendell Berry and Dallas Willard at the bar. What is the order? Uh, he goes to a, a, a cafe and he gets a, a fancy coffee drink before he comes into the bar. Okay. The, the man, I think, writes all his books sitting in a cafe. Gotcha. <laughs> well, you know, he's alive. Which Maybe I, we need to bring him on on script and ask him, I like, think, you know, what, I what, think do, you you should, or, what yeah. do you order? Like, we need, we need, yeah. to, we need to find out. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway, okay. And so what does he, what does he want to say about, um, uh, yeah, how, how the good life comes together for us and, and what the church needs to hear? So... What I think he would say, uh, he's a big fan of Wendell Berry too, by the way, has this great essay where he is sitting in Costco, eating a Costco hot dog, reading Wendell Berry, and has a moment where he realizes this is just absurd. <laughs> something's, something's inconsistent here. <laughs> but so if, if Dallas Willard's argument is focused on the reference, or the, as you say, you know, the renovation of the heart, how is it as individuals that we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. What I think James K. A. Smith is trying to do in his cultural liturgy, liturgy series, so that's um, desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom, and awaiting the king. And by the way, sort of a popular version of, of the first of those is a book called You Are What You Love, which I would heartily recommend um, to your listeners. What I think he would say is that yes, individual spiritual disciplines are vitally important, but we are also shaped um, by our liturgical practices. And so I think he would call for uh, reform of the church's liturgy and worship such that it is properly restoring our imagination and placing us properly into this narrative that we are trying, as N.T. Wright says, to sort of improvise as actors called up on the stage for the last act. Yeah, that's that's well put. Um, and, you know, how do we, um, I guess, uh, one of the things you're, you're trying to do in this project is to recalibrate our imagination by drawing on the Apostle Paul. Um, and here we, we need to be coming to the end of our conversation anyway, so maybe this can be a final statement for you um, as you think, how does this all come together, right? How do we recalibrate our imaginations, uh, maybe um, as you think about uh, the relationship between kingship and polis and citizenship and commonwealth and creation and all of that? Um, what, what's the bottom line for you? Like, how are you, um, how are you at work here? That's a, that's a really good question. It's a deeply personal question. Uh, I'll say this. One of the difficulties of writing this book for me, Matt, was I was trying to convince myself of something. I was trying to learn about something for myself 
and ask myself, what would my own life look like if um, I put my full-bodied allegiance, uh, gave that to Jesus? Um, and I and I have to confess, you know, my own life doesn't always look like what I would hope it would look to look like as the author of this book. <laughs> so if you you know if you think about the if you think about bodybuilding books, I have a, a bodybuilding book. Uh, if you're looking at me, you wouldn't guess that I would, right? But the the guy on that cover has a great looking upper torso, and I think if there were a sort of a spiritual picture of me on this book, I, I would look sort of haggard and gaunt and not really, I wouldn't be the greatest advertisement for my book. I'm at a personal level, Matt, still trying to work out how spiritual disciplines, how worship, um, how the practices by which we learn to care for creation um, all are involved in leading us into the life of of flourishing that is focused on Jesus. Maybe the helpful answer here, though, is to say that what's really been helpful to me has uh, been an effort to um, involve myself in practices that teach me something about living a life of faithful obedience to Jesus. And one of those, um, I, I mentioned it towards the end of the book, is actually gardening. And this is something that I have been led into by my wife. Um, I sort of inherited this from marriage, and we we keep chickens, and we uh, we have a small plot of land. It's about four and a half acres, and I guess I I learn a lot practically from trying to learn about the world that God has graciously given us as a gift. Hmm. Well, um, certainly we're all in process, right? But you, I think, in this book, do um, give us a beautiful picture of Jesus as the ideal king, right? And uh, if you look haggard, well, he looked even more haggard, right? Uh, and uh, we can we can uh, we can rest assured um, that. Uh, that, that there's some comfort in that, right? And I think you do a beautiful job of articulating how, like, he embodies um, the law uh, and goes beyond it, right? Uh, and uh, in in that sense, right, as we gaze on him as the one who is the fulfillment of God's intentions, we give our loyalty to him, then uh, transformation happens both in the polis and for creation. So I think it's a, it's a, just a deeply integrative book, and, and that this is all not just like— um, like distant from our salvation or from the rescue God intends for us, like it's part of his deliverance package, right? That we're delivered from something, but for something, for community, for creation. Um, and I just love how you brought all that together so powerfully in this book. So I think um, I'm grateful for it. I think the church will be grateful for it. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Today's guest has been Julian Smith uh, with his book, Paul and the Good Life, Transformation and Citizenship in the Commonwealth of God. Uh, published by Baylor University Press in 2020. Well, I love this book. In fact, I offered uh, this back cover endorsement uh, for the book. I'll go ahead and read it for you. In this exciting and important study, Julian Smith goes farther back and deeper in. He shows that the gospel invites us not merely to trust a savior, but to give allegiance to the ideal king 
for the sake of human flourishing. The separate streams are joined to the headwaters and mapped afresh. And I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what um, uh, Julian has done in this book. He's, he's given us a map to sort of um, put the dots together uh, in new and important ways. So if you're interested in integrating Paul's vision for salvation holistically, you really need to check it out. Uh, there are links to the book on our website, uh, which is www.onscript.study. Uh, thanks, Julian, and thanks to all our listeners. Thank you, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.